have you turn to Zephaniah chapter 3. So we're uh, getting back to these uh, minor prophets after uh, some time away. And, and let me just remind you where we are. We're going to be reading from verse 8 through the end of the chapter. But let me just remind you where we are. We're in about 620 B.C., something like that. That's sort of the, the time frame, if you will. Josiah is king. Um, and and there's, a, there's a revival, frankly, that has broken out in Israel. And it, and it started with Josiah, who began to reign at eight years of age. And when he was, and, he, and the text, if you, if you look at 2 Kings 24 and 25, or 2 Chronicles 34 and 35, the text will tell you that, that Josiah began to seek after the Lord. He began to seek after the Lord. And when he was 12, he started to purge Jerusalem of idolatries. This is a this is a twelve year old kid, but he's king, and God does something in his heart, and and this revival thing begins to break out, and and Josiah begins to repair the temple. He commissions people to repair the temple to put things back in order, and they're rummaging around in the basement, if you will, and they find the Book of the Covenant. They find the Bible. They find the law of God. And then they celebrate the Passover. And they have a party. They have a blast. Because the Passover celebrates God's redemption. It celebrates God's act of deliverance. And this grabs some people. It captures some people. But sadly... It doesn't capture the whole nation. It captures, as typically seemed to happen in the Old Testament, it captures a remnant. And that remnant actually is referred to in Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Now, there's a word here for the remnant. For those folks who have been grabbed and captured and caught up into this this grand story of God's redeeming purpose for his people. And what's at the center of that redeeming purpose, if you'll think back just a couple of weeks, is this idea of the day of the Lord. It recurs in Zephaniah. It's all over the Old Testament. And what it points to is a decisive cataclysmic intervention of God. And in that intervention, when God intervenes, a couple of things happen. There are two sides to the same coin. Sometimes one is emphasized more than the other. Sometimes the other more than the former. But two things are always connected. Judgment upon unrighteousness and the vindication and deliverance of of the righteous people of God. So for some, it's a day of terror. But for some, it's a day of hope, a day of anticipation. And they can't wait for it to come. Now let me just suggest to you that you're living in days kind of like, some significant differences, but kind of like the days of Josiah. There is a day coming, my friends. Capital D. Capital A. Capital Y. There is a day coming. And as you Think about that day. And as you hear these verses from Zephaniah chapter 3, there are three words I want you to use as pegs to sort of hang this passage on. Wait, watch, and wonder. Wait, watch, 
and wonder. Wait upon God. Watch for God and what he does and wonder at the pleasure and joy of God himself. Okay, now let me give you the outline. Let me read the passage, okay? Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Wait. Wait for that day. And then verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, which is Egypt, from beyond the rivers of Egypt, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame, Because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones. And you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice. They shall speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. That time I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Bring it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day, the day that is coming. We ask you that as we think about these things now, as we look to you, as we wait upon you, that you would help us, help us to understand, help us to believe, and help us to rest in the beauty of the things that you are saying to us here today, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated.
So three things. Wait, watch, and wonder. Wait upon God, watch for God, and wonder at God. Wait, wait, wait. Wait upon God. Um, I suppose Judgment Day will show the exact value of rock and roll. And it may show it to be of little value. But occasionally something pops out of rock and roll that is wonderfully incisive and that sort of summarizes stuff. Apologies to those who don't like rock and roll, who think it's a bad thing. Um, There's a lot of it that is bad. I agree with you. Um, But there's a lot of it that's fun and good. And there's this band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, who wrote this song called The Waiting. And the refrain is, the waiting is the hardest part. The waiting is the hardest part. The Lord continues to talk about this day. If you read through Zephaniah, it's all over this prophecy. But as I said, it's all over the whole of the Old Testament. This day that is coming, this day that will be glorious. And he describes it again. He talks about it again in verses 8 and following. And he talks about these two aspects of it which seem to be polar opposites, one from the other. This day in which God will rise up and he will seize the prey and he will gather the nations and assemble the kingdoms. And these are not abstractions, folks. Nations are populated by people. Kingdoms are populated by people. And what he's saying is, I'm going to gather people on that day. I'm going to gather people before me. And I'm going to seize them like a prey. In all my burning anger and the fire of my jealousy, all of the earth will be considered. It's a day of judgment, and that day is coming. But you look at verse 9, and, and here you're being whipsawed, you know, from one extreme to the other. And he says this day will be a day in which things that offend are removed, deeds by which you've rebelled against me. Verse 11, they'll be removed from your midst, proudly exultant ones, those who glory in their own strength, who are proud, who raise themselves up, who become oppressors, who become harmful to others, whether it's Robert Mugabe on another continent or Bernie Madoff on Wall Street. God is going to stand against the proud and those who exploit. He's going to vindicate righteousness. He's going to vindicate his people. Here's this day day that's coming. In the midst of that, God says, wait, wait for me. Waiting is a kind of a twofold thing. There's a chronological dimension to it. There's a time sort of factor to it. Waiting, you know, waiting for something that's out there that you want to be here now. Think about kids as they look forward to Christmas. They're waiting. And the waiting is the hardest part. Think about a pregnancy. Sorry, guys, I know you can't really relate. Many of you women can. Think about a pregnancy. The waiting is the hardest part, and it gets harder as it gets closer. The waiting. Think about other things that Involve time and the passage of time. There's that aspect of waiting. But there's another aspect 
to this business of waiting. There's the time consideration. There's that sense of longing, waiting for the arrival of the day. And you you think about it in this context, this waiting for this this time that is described in this passage. And I'm, I'm just summarizing for you here what's going on, this time when there'll be no more Robert Mugabe. When there'll be no more Bernie Madoff. When there'll be no more violence, no more guns. With apologies to the NRA. There'll be no more murder, no more pillaging, no more rape, no more drug trade, no more sex traffic. Waiting for that day. That's what's being talked about here. But there's another kind of waiting. And the word wait captures this other kind of waiting. It's resting and trusting in the one who has appointed that day and who will certainly bring it to pass. Waiting in the midst of the waiting. Waiting upon the Lord in the sense that while I wait for that day to come and I wait for the Lord to act, I'm entrusting myself and everything I see around me to him. I am waiting resting upon him, in him. Anybody who's been around the Bible for any length of time at all knows Isaiah chapter 40, knows this wonderful passage where after God has described himself and and has described how he can take all of the oceans, all of the seas, all of the water on the planet and can gather it as a little puddle in the palm of his hand. Remember when we talked about the hurricanes a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, the power that is generated by a hurricane, all of the waters and all of the hurricanes held tenderly in the palm of his hand. After talking about that and then talking about how he, he casts the stars across the blanket of space and measures the whole of the heavens with a span from the tip of his thumb to the tip of his finger, measuring infinite space with a span. We then come to the end of Isaiah 40. Folks, hear these words. Look, hear these words in the midst of the things that, that, that are dismaying to you. These things that cause you to cry out from the depth of your soul. I know Presbyterians don't cry out. At least not publicly. But when you're alone and you feel the weight of the kind of brokenness that characterizes life and the way it manifests itself in so many different ways, You get to the end of God talking about himself in Isaiah 40 and he says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't grow tired. This is the same God who in the midst of describing himself in his majesty has also described himself as a tender shepherd carries the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gives power to the faint. He gives strength to the weary. And then this verse, those who 
wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not be faint. I remember somebody talking about that passage describing the different speeds at which we get around. Some of us can fly, some of us can run, and some of us can walk. And some of us who are walking are walking barely. But those who wait upon the Lord, not just waiting for something, but who entrust themselves to him, look to him, waiting in that relational sense. To them, God draws near. To them, God imparts strength. Waiting, folks, is a gospel idea. It's a gospel idea. What's the gospel? What is the gospel? It is entirely, completely that I, as we confessed earlier, I, poor sinner, weak, frail, helpless, broken, needy, dependent, But I look to God to do for me what I am powerless to do for myself. That's what the gospel is. It gets reflected very specifically, very expressly in the cross where Jesus, having lived a life of perfect obedience, having fulfilled all of those Ten Commandments, having fulfilled the spirit of them, having loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength every single moment of every single day, having lived for you, dies taking to himself all of your unbelief and your disobedience, all of your corruptions and unrighteousness, every failing, every wrongdoing, every wrong thought, all of the lack of love, lack of kindness that characterizes the whole of your life. He takes all of it away from you. He clothes himself with it and suffers death so that he can rise to life, so that he can ascend to the right hand of the Father where right now he can be praying to the Father for you. What's the gospel? It is God doing for me what I'm powerless to do for myself, seen so clearly in the cross. Yesterday, my, my psalm was Psalm 55, one of the couple of psalms that I was supposed to read and which I did read and which I'm glad I did read. Psalm 55, verse 8. Cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. Cast your burden on the Lord. What is that but waiting on the Lord? See, everywhere there's this relational thing. Who doesn't have burdens? Who doesn't feel weakness? I shared with you, like I know men are not supposed to do this. I know men are supposed to be strong. I'm not. I know men are supposed to be tough, valiant, warriors, brandish the saber, slay the dragon, do all that stuff. I shared this with you a few weeks ago, one Monday morning on the beach, reading the Psalms, reading the New Testament, walking down the street, down the beach, 
saying, God, I'm a child. I'm weak. I'm filled with fear. I'm filled with anxiety. I'm filled with burdens. You must be my father. You must be my father. You must come to me. You must help me. You must defend me. You must protect me. You must lead me. What is that but waiting upon the Lord? What is it but hearing Jesus say, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. said this before, I'll say it again, I'll say it till the day I die. The hardest thing about the Christian life is believing. Believing that God means what he says when he says it. That if I will wait upon him, if I will come to him, he will be my father, he will defend, he will protect, he will shoulder my burdens, he will give me rest. Wait. Yes, wait for the day, but while you wait for the day, wait. And second, while you're waiting, watch. Boy, I tell you, I just have to say this. I wish I were Mark Driscoll. Because he preached, he gets to preach for an hour and 15 minutes at his church out in Seattle. And you can't, I can't either. I mean, I don't think I could do it. I'd pass out before I got that far. But all I'm suggesting is there is so much in this passage, so much I wish I had an hour. Watch. As you wait, as you wait for the day and as you wait upon the Lord and as you hear his promises and as you hear him inviting you to come to him, to cast your burdens upon him, as you hear him calling out to you, saying to you, let me do what you are powerless to do for yourself. Watch, watch what he does. Watch, keep your eyes open. Look around you. Verse 9. For at that time... I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, they shall bring my offering. They shall come. I've got to make this, this sort of technical point for you, so hang in there, bear with me. I think it'll take just a second. He says, at that time, at what time? Well, here is this day of the Lord, this day of the Lord, which is this decisive, invasive, cataclysmic thing in which God visits judgment and vindicates righteousness. From Zephaniah's perspective, as he looks down the hallway of history, all he sees out there is it, this day of the Lord. Now, here's what happened. I've said this to you before. When the king came, he brought the day with him. When the king came, he brought the latter days with him. When he came, he brought the time that is being referred to in verses 9 and 10. It started. It's underway. The great day of judgment and vindication begins with the arrival of the king. And so now we live in this in-between time where it's already started, but it's not yet finished. Right? Already, not yet. Keep that simple phrase in your heads. It's the only way you're going to be able to understand a lot of the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
So what, in view, what is in view here in verses 9 and 10 during this in-between time when the king comes, the king lives, the king dies, the king is raised victorious, the king ascends into the heavenly places, and what is the king doing now? Is he waiting? No, he's working. He's working, fulfilling what Zephaniah sees in verses 9 and 10. He is changing the speech of the nations. He is turning the lips of those who would reject God from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, from beyond Egypt to the uttermost parts of the earth. He is changing the lips of the rebellious into the lips of those who would bring him praise. That's what he's doing. The word that is here in the text I will change the speech of the peoples is a powerful word. It's not used that much in the Old Testament. But again, what it refers to is something that God alone can do. You can find a reference to it. You can find a place where it's used in Exodus 18. This is just one of a handful of places I could point you to. Exodus 18, it's in the midst of the plagues, you know, where God, small d, small day of the Lord, is bringing judgment and delivering, vindicating his people. He brings it through ten plagues and then the final plague, which is the plague of death in Exodus chapter 18. You remember the locusts? He brings a wind, a wind out of the east that blows the locusts across Egypt and the locusts devour the land. And then, after Moses intervenes, the wind changes, the text tells us that God changed the wind. He completely reversed the direction of the wind. Completely. And it's clear that there's only one being in the whole of the universe with power sufficient to do that. And that is the God of heaven and earth. He changed it. He altered it. That's how this word is used. In the Old Testament, it's used to refer to things that can be attributed only to God's divine power and action. And what is happening here? God changes the speech of the nations. You get to the New Testament. Again, I know this is a humbling sort of thing because we, we want to be able to help ourselves, don't we? We want to be able to fix ourselves. We, we, want, to be, we want to go to Barnes & Noble. We, we want to go to the self-help section and find the book that has the key, that has the three steps or seven steps or 12 steps. We want to go to the bookstore and find the book that will provide me with the key by which I can change me. The lips of the people will never be changed until I, the Lord of heaven and earth, change their speech. It's a humbling thing to feel so powerless in the face of yourself. When you come to the New Testament, as I said, there are these images that are used. You know the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, you must be a great teacher. Nobody could do the stuff you're doing unless God were with him. 
says, Nicodemus, you don't get it. You don't get it at all. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a teacher. He talks about the kingdom. He says, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, born from above, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. And here it is. What's the proof of that, Nicodemus? What's the proof of the fact that you can't even see the kingdom of God apart from this act of the Spirit by which you are recreated and made new? The kingdom is standing right in front of you. The incarnation, the embodiment of the kingdom, everything that the kingdom is, is found in the king. Here it is, right in front of you, and you can't see it. And you'll never see it apart from this work of God which God alone can do. May I just plead with you? If you're hearing these things and these things are making no sense to you, here is your prayer. It's the only prayer worth praying. God, have mercy. Enable me to see. God, have mercy. Enable me to see. Because I don't know what he's talking about. It makes no sense to me. That's Nicodemus. That's Nicodemus. You look at Jesus, you like Jesus, you think he's a wonderful teacher, a moral guy, pithy sayings, all of that kind of stuff. You're missing it. He is the embodiment of the kingdom. And apart from this work of God, by which lips are changed, by which hearts are changed, by which God brings into existence things that do not exist. Ephesians 2, this work of God by which God raises dead things back to life. You were dead in your trespasses, but he who is rich in mercy has made you alive. If this stuff is falling on deaf ears, my plea, my encouragement is you pray this one prayer. God, have mercy. Give me eyes to see. And hard to believe. I can't help myself. There's this wonderful scene, this wonderful picture. I mean, it's such a great picture. C.S. Lewis, you know, somebody said to me some months ago, everybody refers to Lewis. What is the deal with Lewis? Well, not everybody likes Lewis, and I can understand that. But let me just tell you that Lewis captures some stuff, and that's what the deal is with Lewis. And there's this wonderful picture in one of the Chronicles of Narnia, the voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, where this little boy Eustace, now this is this will preach itself. See, this is why I wish I had an hour and 15 minutes because there are always sermons within the sermon. Eustace has fallen in love with the dragon's treasure. He, I mean, it's, he's fallen in love with the dragon's treasure, right? You know the mythology, the, the cave where the, where the dragon lives, the flying dragon, you know, and he's got all this treasure and he protects it and Eustace has fallen in love with the dragon's treasure. Go read Psalms 115 and one, Psalm 135. It's the same text. It's in both Psalms where the writer of the Psalms warns us Basically saying, the idols of the nations can't see, they can't hear, they can't speak, they can't do anything. And those who love them become like them. And that's what happens to Eustace. 
He loves the dragon's treasure. And what happens to Eustace? He becomes like a dragon. He's no longer a little boy covered in scaly skin. And, and, you know, he thought he had everything when he had the dragon's treasure. But what he found was that everybody ran away from him because he looked like a dragon. And he acted like a dragon. He fell in love with the dragon's stuff and he became like the dragon. And there's this wonderful scene in the voyage of the Dawn Treader and it, it speaks to this business of helplessness. Your helplessness, my helplessness, my powerlessness, my inability... This wonderful scene where Eustace comes to this brook, this little pond, this this little lake. And he wants to refresh himself in it. He He wants to get in it so that he can become clean. This is what Lewis writes. The water was as clear as anything. And I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain But the lion told me that the pain that comes from this being a dragon stuff. But the lion, who is Aslan, told me that I had to undress first. Now, mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I didn't have any clothes on when I suddenly thought dragons are snaky sorts of things. Snakes can cast off their skins. So, of course, I thought that's what the lion means. So I start scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. And then in a minute or two, I just stepped out of it and I could see it there lying beside me looking rather nasty. And it was a most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my foot into the water, I looked down and I saw that it was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just like it had been before. Still a dragon. Went to Barnes and Noble, got the self-help book, peeled off a layer of skin. Still a dragon. Well, that's all right, said I. It only means that I had another smaller suit underneath the first one, so I'll have to get out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully. And out I stepped, and I left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened Again, and I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off? For I was longing to bathe. I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got off a third skin just like the other two. And I stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. And then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of its claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. See how Lewis gets the gospel? What is it that drives people into the claws of the lion? Desperation. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. 
the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the sheer pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled it off just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times. Only they didn't hurt. There it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and much smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me and he threw me into the water and it smarted like anything but only for a moment and after that it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing I found that all the pain had gone and I saw why. I'd been turned into a boy again. What is going on around you while you wait and while you wait? This is what is going on around you. The Lord is changing people. The Lord is changing the lips of rebels into lips of worshipers. He's doing it in every nation and tribe and tongue. Did you hear recently the story of the son of the Hamas leader who left Islam and was converted to Christ? Did you hear that story? It's being multiplied countless times among the nations of the earth because the God of omnipotent power and compassion and kindness is exerting both in the direction of a people gathered from every race every nation, every tribe, every tongue, changing their lips from the lips of rebels into the lips of worshipers. Now listen. I want that day to come. I want it to come. I want it to come badly. My wife has worried through the years that God might take me home because I worry so much and think so much about heaven. I want that day to come. But let me tell you this. There were people on April 15th, 1971, who wanted that day to come as desperately then as I do today. And if that day had come on April 15th, 1971... Not only would I not be here preaching to you, I would not be in the presence of Jesus. I would have been cast from the presence of Jesus into eternal wrath and judgment. But you see, because the Lord in infinite mercy and compassion loving me with an everlasting love, determined that because of that love he would be rich in mercy to me, would raise me from death to life. On April 16th, 1971, I believed the gospel by his grace. And so rather than facing the prospect of judgment, now look forward to the day of vindication.
Jesus will not bring that day until he has finished changing the lips of all of those for whom he has died. So be patient. Be patient and look around and watch what God is doing. And then lastly, quickly, two minutes. Finally, wonder. Wonder at the joy of God himself. Verse 17. While you wait for that day, while you look around and watch what God is doing, wonder at this, that the Lord your God is in your midst. He is right here. He is right here in the midst of you as people. And look at what he says about you who know him, whose lips have been changed, who by his grace have been made his sons and daughters. Look at what he says. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. How do you think of how God thinks of you? I know you think about it. But you see, if, if you this morning are a child of God, a daughter of God, a son of God, he is so content as he looks upon you that he is silenced by his joy. Now, many of you, parents, grandparents, you've held children, grandchildren in your arms. You know that it's what Spurgeon called the love of complacency. You know what it's like to be perfectly at rest, embracing a child? Grandparents tell me, interesting, maybe it's because they don't have to do all the work that parents do. Grandparents tell me they seem to know a greater joy with grandchildren than they do with their own probably because they get all the benefits and none of the hassles. But then look at this other thing. He will exult over you with loud singing. Here's how one commentator talks about this. Now he sees his former enemies and there is a joy so overwhelming that his heart is full and on the one hand, humanly speaking, he cannot give expression to it. He is speechless. He has no words to express the depth of his joy and delight in his children whom he loves. But on the other hand, as he silently contemplates his beloved church, his human beings. There pours forth from his lips and heart such joyous shouting that the heavens shake and echo and re-echo with his jubilation. Yes, his singing. How unseemly of God to shout 
And that's what's being said here. Do you see pictures of it? Yes, you do. You see pictures of God acting with raucous joy, rejoicing, singing, shouting. You see it among other places in Luke 15. You know those parables, the parable of the sheep, the parable of the coin, and the parable of the sun. How does each one end? Each ends with rejoicing. And the last one ends. As my oldest daughter wrote to me this last week, describing a loving and gracious father who will hike up his robe and act with ridiculous and embarrassing joy when a wandering child comes home. I love that. She had to have stolen that from somebody else. (laughs) Ridiculous and embarrassing joy when a wandering child comes home. You see it in Hebrews chapter 2. That's your assignment for this afternoon. Go read Hebrews chapter 2. Psalm 22 is cited in Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 describes Jesus who has lived, who has died, who is raised, who is now ascended to the right hand of the Father to live forever in the midst of his people, leading the people in the worship of God as God sings back with delight at his son and his son's brothers and sisters. It is antiphonal singing of the highest order, beginning at the throne and then resounding back from the congregation with Jesus in the midst, leading the assembly in the praise of God. That's what Zephaniah is talking about, a cacophony of praise. So, wait. Wait upon the Lord. Wait for the day of the Lord. But watch what the Lord is doing and enter into the joy of the Son and the Father as they together celebrate that people are being changed and more and more voices are being added to the chorus every single day until they're all gathered in. And then Jesus comes back and the party begins. Let's pray together. God, encourage our hearts with these things. Stir us up. Keep our eyes fixed upon the consummation of the day which you have inaugurated, day in which you will be vindicated, day in which all the ugliness, the grossness, the blackness, the darkness, the injustice, all of the unrighteousness, everything we hate and abhor, it'll finally be gone. And your people will be fully delivered to enter into your presence, body and soul, to sing with joy, even as you sing over them. Can't, I can't understand it, but I believe it, God. Help me to believe it more and help me to keep my eyes fixed on that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing. I invite you to sing. Oh, 4,000 tongues to sing. I hope there's some reason in your heart to sing.